because we're kind of like, that's ah, good. Like if nothing's imploding or exploding, like we're just good. You know, we're coasting, man. We're good. And then, yeah, you get down the road and you're like, oh, no, actually things really are not good. Like this actually takes nourishing along the way. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with my friend Jonathan Fields, author of How to Live a Good Life, A Practical Guide to a Life Well Lived. There's a lot in this book. It's almost like a workbook instead of just a regular read-as-you-go kind of novel or or text, but we're talking about the concept of buckets. There's different buckets, connection, relationships, contributions, vitality. There's laws that go in with the buckets, and this is really an interesting practical episode on making sure we're not ignoring vital areas of our life. We're gaining purpose in our work, gaining connection in our relationships. There's a lot of practical snapshot exercises in order to get us out of our autopilot reactive life and make sure that we're getting a lot of ROI, especially in terms terms of our sanity. And by the way, if you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the AOC toolbox where we discuss things like reading body language and having charismatic nonverbal communication, the science of attraction, negotiation techniques, networking and influence strategies, mentorship, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here at The Art of Charm. In the U.S., you can text the word charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. Also at theartofcharm.com slash podcast, you can find the full show notes for this and all previous episodes of the show. All right, here's Jonathan Fields. Jonathan, great to have you. Is it back on the show or is this the first time you've been on the show? I, I'm drawing a blank here. I'm trying to remember. It's like we've known each other for so long. I think it's the first time though. It might be the first time we've done something that's arable because I was on your show and it was just like delete quietly. Man, that was like six, seven years ago. That was a long time ago for both of us. And I remember it so well because I use it as an example. I was in the worst, terrible emotional state for some reason. I, I don't know if I'd just gone through a breakup or something and I just moved. Oh, we'd gotten robbed. We'd just moved to LA. And I was like, I don't even know. There was something else going on. And I use it as a classic example of how you can't do things that require high performance when there's something else going on that you're not taking care of. Yeah, uh, so agree. We think we can, though. Very apropos your book, actually. I spent years being like, oh, it's cool if I hate every second of my working life because I'm dealing with problems. Oh, it's cool if I haven't been paying attention to my health and I've been neglecting my social life in this respect or the other respect. It's fine because I'm working on my business or something like that. And then just talk about something that's contrary to the message of AOC in general. And then I realized this is not working out. The reason I realized this is because I'd hit some weird wall where I just decided, screw it, I need to take care of myself, I don't even care if we go out of business. And the day I decided to do that, everything took off. Yeah, isn't it crazy? I mean, it's so funny, you know, you and I probably both spend a lot of time talking to people who are in business and entrepreneurs, and they're constantly looking for the big lever that exists outside of themselves. They're like, tell me the marketing tactic or the website or the app or show me the exponential growth lever that exists outside of me so that everything takes off. Never realizing that like the single biggest propulsion factor for your growth in life, in business, whatever it may be, it's you. It's, you know, it's what exists between your ears. And but that's hard. And we want to find something where we can just buy it or, you know, like turn it on outside of us. Right. These internet marketer guys that you and I both know, a lot of them are like Facebook ads and all this stuff. And it's great. Look, I get it. That's great lead gen. But if your hair is falling out because you're maxed out on every other area of your life and you're not taking care of your health and your wife is leaving you or something like that, or your husband's leaving you, then you can have a great Facebook ads campaign. But I'm betting the rest of your business is in the toilet and rest of your life for that matter. And I think that that's really an interesting point and leads to my first question, which is who is your book for? Because one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is because you know I've known you for so long, interesting, sharp guy, really good coach, but who's the book for? Because I feel like whenever I see books like this, they're written for ourselves. Yeah, you know, what's really funny is that, you know, I had somebody in mind when writing the book and it was somebody who in the middle season of their life, somebody who's kind of, they're doing okay, but they've been kicked around a lot. They have probably sacrificed a whole lot of their identity, who they were in the name of a lot of other things and a lot of other people. You know, they're doing okay by outside metrics, but inside they're kind of dying a little bit every day. And they feel like they're living life on somebody else's terms. They're massively reactive. 
And not in sort of like this metaphysical woo out there way, but like in a very practical way, you wake up and you're like, you know what, I'm largely flatlined. And that's become sadly the experience of so many people. You kind of figure like you hit a certain point in your life and you're like, oh, I'll just push a little harder, you know, because I'll get there to that place where everything's going to be good. And then I'll cruise. You know, I have no problem with working hard and doing big things and building, but we have tended to kind of like surrender a sense of intentionality and agency and just increasingly living these mindless, hyper-reactive existences. And I think that's massively destructive to so many of us. And that's the person that I really wrote this for, which is like you said, it has been me, you know, at various moments in my life. And, you know, I'm not a guru up on high. I'm very much along the journey with everyone else. It probably will be me again at some point. So it's almost like, you know, at some point I'll probably reflect back on my own words and say, maybe you should start taking your own lessons again. I think anytime you are saying, take your own advice, it's a good sign. I know most people think that's a bad thing because you're supposed to have everything in order, but I think it's a good sign. And the reason I think that is because in order to even recognize that you need to take your own advice, you're already on the way to that awareness that requires you to be introspective enough to apply something or to learn something new. Jen loves this more than I do. She loves saying, <laughs> take your own advice. <laughs> but but it's good because when I hear that, I kind of go, oh, good. Not only am I aware enough to realize that I need to do that, but I already have the solution. I mean, that's a really good place to be versus for those of us that don't know what advice to get because we don't understand the problem and we don't know where to go. And if we do understand the problem, we don't know how to fix it. That's much worse than, hey, man, take your own physician, heal thyself, right? It, that's a much better place to be in. Yeah. And I think when you kind of get to a point where you're like, you're unwilling to actually take your own advice or anybody else's advice for that matter, it's like, that's the point where you stopped growing. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like, if I never stumble then I never had the opportunity to find my next treasure. You know, like sort of using uh, Campbell's frame around, you know, like the hero's journey. It's like, if I'm constantly just going sideways and I'm never feeling that struggle or the stumble, it's like, okay, so there's no growth happening here, which means that there's no possibility happening either. So I would rather get to a point where I'm like, ah, oh, I have to reset. Like things aren't going right. I have to get back into doing what I need to do to make them go right. Because if I'm never there, I'm never moving forward. If you're not growing, you're dying or something like that. Yeah, it's Bob Dylan. Some like those who aren't busy living or busy dying. Yeah. Get busy living or get busy dying. It's along those lines. I probably didn't just quote Dylan on purpose, but uh, I think it oh, was. Oh, sure, you didn't. One of the things that I thought was really interesting that stuck out of this book right away was the different buckets idea that you have. And I thought this was cool and very simple. And I would love it if you can teach us about the different buckets, because I'd never actually thought of things this way before. And I see a lot of people who are having serious issues in one area of their life, and they're mystified as to why it often does come down to the idea of the buckets. Yeah. And it's almost like it's this deceptively simple idea. And I didn't want to create a book that people read and they're like, well, that was nice and move on. I really want to create more of like a something that people did. And one of the questions I asked is like, there is no lack of material or information in the world of self-help, personal development. So I didn't want to just add to this massive, so like abyss of, of stuff. So I was really asking myself, it's kind of like a lot of what you do with the work that you do. It's like, well, if so much of this has been out there for so long, why aren't so many people taking action on it? And I think a lot of it is it's delivered in a way that requires you to buy into dogma or big belief systems or create mass disruption in your life. And my goal was, okay, how can I create a really simple model that is visual where you hear it once you remember it for life and you can actually act on it. It guides your behavior on a day-to-day -day basis helps you make decisions. And that's where I've, over a period of years, I just, I kept exploring all different ways to share it. And eventually just a really simple idea of life as three buckets came to me. And then I started, I spent a few years testing this with our different communities because I wanted to know if it was robust enough, like would it actually make a difference? So the idea is really simple. Think of your life as three buckets. One is called your vitality bucket. That's about optimizing your state of mind and body. The second is called your connection bucket. That's about cultivating deep and meaningful relationships. The third is your contribution bucket. That's about how you bring your strengths, your gifts, your beliefs to the world. It's about how you contribute to the world around you. And that may be the way that you also earn your living. But interestingly, it may also not be the primary source of income for you too. So a good life then is when you basically do the work to make all three buckets as full as you can get them and then develop a daily practice of basically every day taking a quick look and saying, okay, so how full is each one of these three buckets? And what can I do today 
to fill them, or if one feels like it's exceedingly low, which very often happens with people, what do I need to focus my energy so that I can actually bring that one back up a little bit? So can you take us through the bucket exercise? Because I know there are people right now who are like, yeah, yeah, I get it, buckets. I need to fix this because I know that my relationship life is in the toilet, but I'm working really hard and I got promoted. Why do I feel like crap, right? It's that kind of thing that we're gonna be dealing with here. Yeah, so you know, step one for me is let's get really objective because we love to be delusional about the state of our life, You know, what's good and what's not good, and that includes the state of our buckets. We love to pretend that actually certain buckets are full when they're sort of like, bone dry. You know, the perfect example of this is when we're working, you know, we'll kind of be like, well, I'm going all in because I'm building my career. I've got a company, whatever it is. And I'll sleep when I die. You know, I'll yeah. take care of my body and my health, you know, like when I need to, you know, not realizing that actually, or we'll just tell ourselves, well, it's really not so bad. You know, it's like, everything's okay. Like I'm young, I can handle it. You know, I'm still in pretty good shape. And then all of a sudden we crash and burn because we just were not being truthful. So what I found is it's really helpful to take a snapshot of how full your buckets are or how empty these three buckets are on any given day. I like to do this as a 10 second scan in the morning. I think it's good to do it in more detail once a week and then in even more detail once a month. And it keeps you honest, you know, because we love to tell lies about the state of our lives, both good and bad. Or just blow it off, right? Like, yeah, 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 I know I haven't been working out, but I've been working on the Carter deal and once this closes, man, I'm gonna be good. Right, because you'd never do this in your business, right? You'd never say, look, I don't have a prototype, I don't have my website up, my email account is down, but look, I've been going to the gym like five days a week, I'm good. You would never say that about your own business, but you will sacrifice everything else because of your business, right? Yeah, you'll sacrifice your health, you'll sacrifice your state of mind, you'll sacrifice your relationships. I mean, many people blow them up because they feel like those are the recoverable things. You only have one shot at building this business. And it's so funny because very often it's the exact opposite, you know? So I'm a big fan of, of creating mechanisms to actually be as objective as you can on a regular basis. It's kind of like the idea of the research around weight loss. You know, if you want to actually lose weight and sustain weight loss, the research, at least that I've seen, is pretty clear that you have to take some sort of metric and actually measure yourself on a really regular basis. That could be a scale, it could be clothes, whatever it is that if you actually are checking in, it forces you to be honest and it stops you from going off the rails a lot sooner and it lets you correct course a lot more quickly because we will either blow it off or we'll just tell the story that we want to tell that enables us to continue the behavior that we're engaged in. True, and God, man, I've done this just so much, it's painful. I'm raising my hand also. <laughs> That's like what we do. What sort of buckets do you see that most people are ignoring? Is it really health or is it relationships? Where are most people falling short yeah, so this is really interesting because we actually have data on this at this point. So along with the launch of the book, you know, which was a couple of months, we launched this tool called the Snapshot 360 where people go online and they would answer 30 questions and it gives you numerical values for each of your three buckets, a snapshot in time. And behind that, we've been able to actually gather aggregate data now on thousands and thousands of people. So we can actually start to really see how are people on a larger scale doing with the different buckets and where do people need help? What we're seeing is fascinating and a little bit upsetting, which is that the average number, let's say out of a 10, the average bucket is five point something across all three. So, you know, on average, that means that most of us are walking around with all three buckets somewhere around a little better than half full, which is we'd like to think that we're better than that. So it's really eye-opening to think that. And then what we're seeing when we get deeper into the data that we're gathering within the buckets is that Vitality bucket is definitely, it's a major challenge for a lot of people. What's interesting to me is that it's not so much in the way that we would think. So a lot of us would think, okay, so if vitality bucket is about optimizing your state of mind and body, you know, and most people blow off exercise because they're like, I don't have time for it. That's got to be the thing that's really the biggest problem. That's what's dragging the scores down. What we're finding is that actually the bigger challenge, the bigger negative in the data is mindset. People are really struggling with mindset, with resilience, and with handling uncertainty, and with optimism. We're not, again, we're not talking about like delusional positivity. You know, we're talking about actually just being able to cultivate sustainable optimism and positive states, but also really, and also being mindless. This is a huge, huge issue. People are really struggling with figuring out how to be present 
in whatever it is they're doing. They're constantly spinning and massively distracted. So it's interesting to see that that seems to be a much bigger challenge in the vitality side of things. In the contribution side of things, this is really interesting also. I would have guessed that most folks would really struggle with not having a sense for what their strengths were and what they were capable of. And what we're seeing is actually that a lot of people are sharing that they actually do have a really strong sense of what their strengths and their beliefs and their skills are. But at the same time, we're seeing a really, really low rating on a sense of purposefulness. Like they feel like the way that they're contributing to the world, there's a very low level of meaning and purpose in what they're doing, which kind of tells you, those two things together tell you that you kind of know what your character strengths are and what your skills and abilities are and what lights you up, but you have a really low sense of meaningfulness and purpose. That means that you're not actually engaging them. You're not doing them. So, okay, that makes sense. Because I was just going to say, if you know what lights you up, how do you not have purpose? Oh, because you know what lights you up and you're like, yeah, someday maybe I'll get to do that. But right now I got to file these TPS reports. Right, which also reflects back on the mindset issue, which is that if you actually do have a sense for what lights you up and you're not doing it, that's going to be a hit to your state of mind too. It's got to be worse, right? Because if you just think everybody's like this, this is all there is, you're like, oh, well. But if you're like, there's more, but I'm stuck here. That's so much worse. I totally agree because it, it contributes to a sense of futility and fatalism. And I think that, so you take another sort of like secondary hit to state of mind. One of the things that I saw that I loved, it wasn't just, there's different buckets. The end, it was, you have laws of the buckets. <laughs> and these are brilliant because these are what allows you to do this exercise and then not totally just lie to yourself about the results of the exercise. And also it's about the way the buckets interact with each other, which makes it even more important than just, because otherwise the buckets are, hey, there's different areas of your life that need attention. Thanks for buying my book, bye, right? This is, in my opinion, probably the most important part of the whole thing, the way that the buckets interact with each other. Can you guide us through this a little bit? Yeah, so three simple laws. One is that all the buckets leak. You know, the earlier you are in life, the shinier they are, the more sealed they are. You know, you fill them up and they're pretty solid. But over time, they get banged around, they get dented a little bit, and they all start to leak. And so there's this idea that, you know, hey, I'm going to uh, fill my vitality bucket, be totally healthy, optimal state of mind, you know, massively resilient, and then I'm good. You know, but it doesn't work that way because that bucket leaks. So if you start to ignore it over time, the level drops and drops and drops and it gets bone dry. So all three buckets leak all the time. So there never is a point where you can just top them all off and say, I'm done and walk away from them. You got to be invested. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
This is an interesting concept because it's so obvious when it comes to some buckets and it's so elusive when it comes to others. For example, nobody would go to the gym for six months or a year and go, great, lost a bunch of weight, I'm in really good shape, never going to the gym again, I'm done, right? You wouldn't do that. But what a lot of men, including myself, will do sometimes, and I catch myself doing this, of course, whenever possible, is I'll be like, great, got a great relationship, I'm good, she's over there, she's in her office doing her thing, I can check off the box where it says good girlfriend, you know, six months later, it's like, what's wrong with her? Why is she being weird? Oh, because I've been ignoring this bucket for six months because I checked her off like a to-do list. Maybe I should look into maintaining this a little bit, you know? Yeah, and that's the one, actually, where we see the biggest hit. That's exactly it. You know, we all kind of get that you can't stop working out. You can't stop doing the work on your health and your nutrition and stuff like that. But the relationship, especially like with an intimate other or a partner, that is the one where we tend to be the most delusional because we're kind of like, that's oh, good. Like if nothing's imploding or exploding, like we're just good, you know, we're coasting, man, we're good. And then, yeah, you get down the road and you're like, oh no, actually things really are not good. Like this actually takes nourishing along the way. Yeah. And that can be a scary realization, especially if you figure it out because you're looking into an empty bucket, which could be the huge blow up. It could be emotional affairs or other types of affairs. I mean, that's what happens when the bucket's been empty for a while, right? On both sides. No, totally. I had this great conversation a couple of years back with Brad Felt, who most of the world knows is this legendary venture capitalist, but he's also, he's just a really deep thinking, really smart guy who's also deeply wise about life and relationships. And he's madly in love with his wife, Amy. And also like this crazy, crazy busy guy who was flying around working insane hours and there came a time where they kind of said, okay, we need to actually very deliberately create mechanisms to invest in our relationship on a recurring basis if we want to be okay, if we want to, you know, to use my language. They do these two things. They want, they have, I think they call it three minutes in the morning. So it's like every morning, no matter what, they sit down and they have three minutes like, hey, what's up? Literally, they're just, they make sure that they check in every morning with each other. And then once a month, they have these things called life dinners where they pick a restaurant, they go to dinner, they exchange gifts. Doesn't have to be big. Sometimes it's really big. Sometimes it's just really something that said, I'm thinking of you. They order a bottle of wine and they have a nice long dinner and they spend hours and they just really talk about their life together. And you know, he shared that some days they're laughing. Some days it's not all that heavy, it's light and fun. Some days it's really deep and there are tears at the table. But the bigger point being that they acknowledge the fact that you can't coast when it comes to the connection bucket, to relationships that... So I love the fact that he's created like recurring mechanisms that they've both agreed upon that sort of like make sure that they're continuing to fill the bucket. There's an additional thing that he does, which I think is super cool, which is he's also built in an allowance for breaking those rules. I can't remember what it is, but he's some, he said something like, he's allowed to sort of like 13% of the time he's allowed non-compliance. <laughs> so like over the course of a year, he can miss like, you know, like 2.5 of those you know, like <laughs> life dinners or something like that. Or so that it also makes it human. So it kind of accounts for the fact that, okay, sometimes stuff comes up out of nowhere and actually like you just can't do this. But over the longer term, like this is our commitment to each other. Right, that's good, because otherwise it's easy to miss one because you're out of town, and then you're like, yeah, we'll do the next one, and then the next one you're just like, mm, we're good on this, we don't need to do this, right? We're both tired, let's not bother. And uh, it's also seemingly very important to do, especially when you work or live together full-time, like I do, I work with Jenny all the time. I mean, we're together 24-7 and a lot of the time, but I'm not mentally there. Like, I'm in my studio right now. She's downstairs working on some accounting. So it's really easy for me to say, oh, I don't need to do stuff like that because we're together so much. But it seems like it's probably a quality over quantity thing when it comes to the time, right? Because you can spend 24-7 with somebody, but if all you're talking about is reconciling bank transactions and, oh, we've got to figure out how to get food and what time are you going to the gym, you're not really filling up that relationship bucket. You're just navigating logistics with the other person. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to be there. It's another thing to be present. And I, I work with my wife, and, you know, and we're married, it'll be 20 years this year, and we've been working together for a chunk of years. And so we're around each other 24-7, similar to you and Jen, right? But yeah, just because we're around each other, just because we're physically in the presence of each other all the time, doesn't mean we're actually really there. It doesn't mean we're engaging with each other. So we will, you know, try and create mechanisms where we're like, okay, so we're going to go somewhere. We're going to go out to dinner. We're going to go away. And we're not talking about business. 
you know, like there's stuff that just has to be sacred. And especially if you're building something with people that you really care about and it's mission driven and you're both really invested in, and this can be an intimate partner, but it can also be a team of friends. You know, it can be something it's really important to kind of pull yourself out of it sometimes and continue to build a relationship that is actually just healthy outside of that. So the buckets leak, they need to be consistently refilled. What's the second law of the buckets? The second law is, this is maybe the most important one, which is that the height of any bucket will always be artificially capped by the height of all the others. Or So the perfect example of this is, let's say you're working really hard. You're like, okay, so I'm gonna try and fill my contribution bucket. I'm building something really cool, totally invested, and you're working like crazy, right? And you're working really hard, and but still you feel like, you know what? I'm succeeding, but I'm not there. Like I can tell within me, there's this wellspring of potential that I'm not figuring out how to tap. You know, so the first thing that people turn to is like, well, okay, so I'm working really hard. I can't work harder. The answer must be I need to work smarter, right? That's going to get me from where I am to feeling like I'm fully leveraging what I'm capable of doing. So they retune their workflow and they optimize like, okay, so now I'm working harder and smarter. You know, it fills a contribution bucket from a seven to an eight but they still feel like, huh, no matter how smart I work, no matter how hard I work, I'm just, I'm not able to tap my potential, my ability, my strengths, my beliefs, my skills. Just, I know that I have more and I can't access them. It's like, it's out there somewhere. What they're not realizing is that the height of that bucket has been capped and no matter how much harder they work, no matter how much smarter they work, they will never take it from an eight to a 10 because the thing that's stopping them is that they've let the other buckets run dry. And those other buckets, as long as they stay low, they will always artificially cap your potential in the contribution bucket. So the answer counterintuitively is to actually stop working so hard, pull back, reallocate some of your bandwidth to rebuilding your health, to rebuilding your relationships, to rediscovering belonging, and to develop practices that nourish your state of mind. And when you start to do that, what happens is the artificial cap that you've placed on your contribution bucket just dissolves. And all of a sudden you find yourself rising from an eight to a 10 without even working harder or smarter because that was never the problem. Right, so basically the emptiest bucket just drags the rest of the buckets down. Yeah. Yeah, so instead of being empty, it's basically filled with lead. I think one example of this that I thought of when I was reading the book was I found And I still find often a lot of difficulty when I look at business stuff and I'm like, oh, well, this person, they're doing so well with Facebook ads and this other show is growing so large because they're doing this other thing. And oh man, we should have started this. And oh man, this other company has a YouTube channel. I'd really like to emulate that stuff. And it gets, I worry about it. And I feel like I got to double down on certain projects and I'm hiring people to get this stuff done just to plug up these perceived holes in the system. But the answer is not, constantly work on your business even more so that you're outworking everybody, which is a great strategy that I did all through law school and all through my legal career that eventually wore me down into nothing, down to a nub, but really backing up and going, actually, why don't I study Chinese more and spend more time with my friends and stuff like that? And instead of going and worrying about the business stuff and constantly plugging those holes up, I was actually having a lot more fun, felt a lot more balanced, and I'm still able to work hard on the business. Don't get me wrong, I'm not just ignoring the problem. But I don't lose sleep at night because I don't have a great YouTube presence or something like that because it's become less important to me to be super anal and controlling about every aspect of the business because I'm balanced out in these other areas of life. And I had no idea that would happen. I mean, I resisted going out more and relaxing more because I thought, I don't have time for that. I got to work on my stupid YouTube vignettes or whatever it was that was distracting me from my core work. And I found the show got better because I was less worried about all these little extraneous things. And I was like, you know what? I'm actually just going to enjoy reading the books and talking with the guests and stuff like that and talking about the show with my friends while we're out at dinner. It made the whole business better. And it was super counterintuitive. To the outside observer, it kind of looks like, so what, you distracted yourself? with having fun with your friends, like I can do that too, but it's not the same thing as distracting myself. It's more along the lines of, wow, business sure feels like it's going a lot better when I work out four times a week. Yeah, no, totally. And I'll give you a really fascinating, another super practical example for everybody of this also. A guy I sat down with a couple of years ago, um, Sean McCabe, young guy, late 20s, building a design and media firm. And he saw a TED Talk by Stefan Sagmeister, who's this legendary designer. And in his talk, he talked about the fact that 
every seven years, he would take a one-year sabbatical, like literally a one-year sabbatical and not do any work at all. And during that year, every great idea for the next seven years would come to him and he would come back massively renewed and he would spend the next years creating genius work. So Sean said, huh, you know, I'm not ready to do that, but what if I like did my own version? And what he committed to is he does a one-week sabbatical every seven weeks. And his rule is every seven weeks, I'm going to take a week off. And the only rule for that one-week sabbatical is it can't work. He's like, I can't think about work. I can't do work. I can't check in. I have to do something that completely dissociates me from work. He said the first time it came up, he was like, okay, I can do this. I committed to it. So he did it. He said it was amazing. He came back massively renewed. He was there and he was like on fire. He had tons of ideas and he was so rejuvenated that he got done a tremendous amount of work. And then when it came time for the second one, he's like, you know what? Things are just crazy busy at work right now. We're in this really big building mode. Maybe I should just like skip this one. Then he realized, he's like, you know what? If I do this, I basically just give myself permission to do this constantly. He's like, this needs to be a sacred commitment. So he basically, when he made that commitment, what he realized was that he would start to work on a level where he was able to get done in those seven weeks, whatever he needed to get done in order to set himself up so that he would be able to take that next week off and completely unplug from work. And he did it and he came back and he said, like, basically this has become absolutely sacred to him and it is the thing that is fueling really rapid growth in his company. Not only that, but he feels amazing doing it. He's experiencing life, you know, like he's traveling with his life partner He's doing all these incredible things and he's building this business now where now that has become actually part of the company culture. So every employee in his company now is mandated to take a week off every seven weeks and it's paid time. Wow. What do they do during this time? I mean, it's probably kind of sad that I can't think of what I would do if I didn't have any work. I don't know what they do, but I know Sean does a lot of traveling. Okay. You know, like, so he'll pick up and he'll go somewhere. Like when I recorded this conversation with him, he was in New York and they were just hanging out. Like they were just bopping around, like having a great time seeing the sights. So he does a lot of traveling, but he actually just shared sort of a greater vision for this company, which is that they're also planning on launching a nonprofit that does all these really big, powerful service projects around the world. And he's also said that as they build their company, he's planning on instituting the seven-year sabbatical within the company as well so that the employees will get a paid year off as well. And very likely, you know, he wants to make an opportunity for them to spend that year being of service through the foundation, like really deeply devoting themselves to this outside cause. So it's really fascinating what you can create when you commit completely to the idea of honoring this and making it sacred and the impact that it has, you know, so like you said, counterintuitively, you're like, well, if I do that, like I'm going to have to play catch up for all this other time and it's going to put me way behind, but counterintuitively, it actually, you function at such a higher level. You're so much more optimized and energized and ready to go that when you come back from that, you're like, you can't wait to hit the ground running because you're filled with energy and ideas and you're massively more effective and productive. I like that idea. I, I'm, I'm guessing, Jason, you, you approve. <laughs> I approve 1000%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet. Oh, I'll take a week of paid vacation. Hmm. I think for me, it makes sense to do something like this and it makes sense to offer this for people who are heavily stressed out or finding themselves treading water the whole time with their workload and things like that. I like to think I do a pretty good job of balance. However, again, you know, my gut instinct says if I had a week off every two months, I would use it to catch up on work. It must be hard to resist doing that. Yeah. And I think that's the plight of somebody who actually really enjoys what they do. Yeah. You know, and that in fact was like, that was Sean's big challenge because he's like you and me and, and, and probably a lot of other people. I love what I do. You know, like there's gut work, of course, with anything, but fundamentally, you know, like I'm lit up by my work. And that for him too is like, it's actually hard to unplug, not because you're under deadline or because you have some like thing that you have to do for someone else. But when you really are lit up by your work, it's part of it is your play too. So it's almost like you have to proactively think about other things to do that you know will add to and enrich your life that are outside of that. Now, last but not least in terms of the buckets, buckets never lie. That's the third law of the buckets. Tell me about that because that's uh, kind of the point of the exercise, right? Is that yeah. they're, they're illustrative. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where we started the conversation to a certain extent, which is we love to be a little bit delusional. Yeah. But there's two sides of this, right? One is that when things aren't going great, we love to kind of like pretend that they are. 
and tell ourselves that they are. There's a second part, which is that, I don't know, this is something that you've talked about with a number of guests and that I think we've talked about too, is that our brains are wired with this thing called the negativity bias. So we tend to always default towards the negative when there's sort of an uncertain space. And we also tend to not acknowledge what's going right at any given time. We focus on what's gone wrong. So to counter on one side, the delusion of ignoring stuff that's not going right. On the other side, the negativity bias, which doesn't acknowledge the flip side, you know, what's really working, the buckets will always tell you the truth. You know, we can pretend one way or another, but at the end of the day, you know, if your vitality bucket's on a zero, you're going to end up in a world full of hurt and probably pain and probably sickness and disease and a really negative, bad state of mind. And you can tell yourself it's not so bad, but the buckets don't lie. Yeah. Once you start doing the exercise, there's a tool that we created called the Snapshot 360 tool. Great. Yeah. We'll link to that in the show notes. People can go and, and click on that and do the exercise. Yeah. It's like an assessment. I mean, it'll take you basically five minutes and it may be kind of eye opening for you. Yeah. And I think it's important because the problem is we think we have our buckets handled until we realize one is empty. It's very rarely like, hey, I got to make sure I'm maintaining this. We find out we need to do that when something breaks generally. We'll link to that in the show notes as well, of course. I think it is important to to evaluate, especially if we're running a business or we're working really, really hard, especially as us younger folks, young and old, we too tend to live an autopilot reactive life where we're constantly diving into different things and different activities without really evaluating our ROI in terms of sanity. Yeah, to me, if there's one really huge takeaway, it's that the good life meta skill is awareness. Living a good life is a life that you live by choice. It's a life that's intentional. It's a life that's deliberate. It's not a life where you just default mindlessly to whatever comes in front of you. But we can't be intentional until we're aware. Like you can't choose to say yes or no to something until you're actually aware of sort of your internal environment, your external environment, what matters to you, what doesn't matter to you, who you are, what you believe, what the truth of the opportunity is. Until we actually cultivate a sense of awareness, we have no ability to be intentional with the way that we craft our lives. So it's, I mean, to me, it's sort of like, you know, cultivating awareness. I mean, there are a variety of ways that you can go about doing that. That is the meta skill that allows all of the other stuff to happen. Explain the, the, the meta skill idea. Cause I think a lot of folks are like, wait, what are you talking about? And we've heard this before. It's kind of Awareness is a great meta skill, but it's something that most people, I, I don't think, may be familiar with this concept. Yeah, it's sort of the skill that unlocks all other skills. You think of it as the prerequisite class if you're trying to get a degree in school. It's like you don't get access to all the other classes, you know, to get your degree until you take this one thing. The thing about it is in life, you know, we don't get access to having some sense of control over the way we want our lives to unfold until we develop even a baseline sense of awareness. And that's internally and externally. It's awareness of how we feel, awareness of who we are. That's internally. And then externally, awareness of our outside environment, you know, like the circumstances that we live in, our constraints, our resources, our abilities, the opportunities that are around us. And interestingly, you know, awareness is something that is... It's a topic of focus in Eastern culture, but in Western culture, there's really no emphasis on cultivating awareness and there's no training unless you go out and seek it. You know, one of the big buzzwords over the last five years or so has become is mindfulness. Mindfulness. That's the buzzword. That's the synergy. As synergy was in the 90s, mindfulness is right now. Yeah. And sadly, it's probably as a term, you know, like close to jumping the shark which is really unfortunate because the concept is actually astonishingly important and powerful, which is really just, it's the opposite of mindless. You know, it's actually like being mindful, being present, present enough to notice the truth of whatever it is that you're going through, whatever it is you're thinking, you're feeling, you're doing, so that you can choose, like, does this matter to me or does it not matter to me? Is this going to enhance my life or is it going to take away from my life, you know? Is this relationship going to fill me up or is it going to empty me out? You know, is this job opportunity or this project, is it something that's going to make me feel alive or is it something that's going to deaden me and just like crash my buckets? Making those decisions is the difference between living a good life and living completely flatlined, numbed out life. But we can't make any of those decisions until we actually know how we feel, until we're actually aware of the fact that there's a decision to be made. And that's why, you know, you call awareness the meta skill, because it's sort of like you don't have access to choice 
until you're aware of the things you would choose between. That's a really interesting point, right? It doesn't exist until you have a non-sort of binary set of options. I think developing this, it's important as well to not reject this because it sounds woo-woo. I don't know if you're doing this on purpose, but you definitely took your woo hat off for Art of Charm today. I know you outside of this, and I'm like, uh, I might have to corral him a little bit. I haven't had to do that at all. I can speak woo and I can speak practical uh, on the ground. No, but essentially, like I had this weird split brain where I'm sort of open to the more spiritual side of things. And at the same time, if there's, I'm massively science-based. So mm-hmm. I'm deep down in research and journals. And if there is research behind something, I want to know that because my rational brain is like, well, tell me how this works so right. I can understand it and so I can replicate it and so I can turn around and figure out is it teachable and shareable in a way where people will buy into it and do it. Right, and I think we have that in common as well, where we're super science-based, research-based as much as possible. Yeah. We wanna make sure that it's not just somebody selling us an idea, but yeah, definitely, you do definitely speak woo when needed, which I can appreciate, who knows? Maybe in 10 years, the show will be radically different and I'll be uh, on the playa <laughs> or something. I wonder if the fact that we both have, like in our past lives, training as lawyers, sort of like, I wonder if part of that is what makes us both also kind of default to, okay, let's go into like what's really happening here. Let's do the research. Let's like be able to explain it in a rational way. Well, I think it's because when you're going to law school, people are trying to attack your arguments. Whereas in the world of self-help, it's kind of bad manners to say, well, that's cool that you said that that works, but I don't think it does. And you can't, you got to prove it to me. Because if you do that to somebody who's parroting some crap from the secret. They're just going to be like, well, if you don't believe it's not going to work. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, no, thanks. I want a refund on this one. Right. Also, the fact is your clients, AOC clients, folks who come to our boot camps and stuff, these are smart people. We can't just say, take it on faith. They're like, no, thanks. You know, I was raised in a cult, not taking anything on faith or whatever, you know, people's backgrounds are. They're like, no, thanks. I'm an engineer. I'm not taking this on faith. Yeah. And I think they're also like a lot of the folks who are in our communities are we have limited bandwidth. So if we're asking them to try something, it means that they're probably going to have to say no to something else for a fixed window of time. Right. And for them to do that, to make that calculation, we got to give them something to like say, okay, I understand. Here's why, you know, here's some validation that would allow me to say, okay, I'm willing to actually try this thing and see how it works. That's a really good distinction, actually. People who are in our audiences are generally high performers, so they're going to go, hey, I'd love to do this, but in order to do that, I have to go to the gym less or like start this other thing later that I'd like. And yeah, it's always a matter of choice. Very few people listening to you or I are probably wondering which Netflix show to binge that day. It's probably a little bit more on the the, the other side of the coin, uh, trying to figure out how to balance their basic life necessities. I want to wrap with some gratitude stuff, because as much as I hate the other buzzword, which is you know gratitude practice and all this stuff, it gets a little bit metaphysical a lot of the time. In the book, you explain a different type of gratitude practice that, uh, is it called Zeligman gratitude, or did I just write that down in my notes? Yeah, so it actually, it came in part from Martin Seligman, who's considered sort of like, you know, the father of positive psychology. But right. yeah, gratitude has absolutely been one of the other big buzzwords. And, and one of the reasons is because it's one of the best researched positive psychology interventions. It's really well known and established that it actually makes a tremendous difference in your state of mind and in your level of positivity and resilience. But a lot of the focus has been around what people call gratitude journaling. And that's great, but there's another intervention that is insanely powerful, that takes a little bit more effort, but so you're not gonna do it as frequently, but it's so effective that I think it's really interesting. And that's what I shared in the book and it's called the gratitude visit. And the instructions are really simple. Think about somebody from your past who in some way has made a really meaningful difference in your journey, but you never really went back and told them And it might've been a moment in time where they gave you permission to do something. It might've been like, you know, they were mentoring you or guiding you over a long period of time. Whatever it was, they really made a difference and you never told them how they made a difference and why and what it's done. So you bring that picture into your mind and then you sit down and you literally write one side of a page, write it in handwritten. You say, hey, listen, this is what happened. Like, this is what happened between us. This is what you did. This is how it made a difference in my life. This is how it changed me. And I want to say thank you. You know, it was really meaningful. And then what you do is you take that and you call the person up or you text them or email them, whatever. And this works when it's somebody here where you can actually have physical access to them. Say, hey, listen, I'd love to swing by. You find a time. You don't tell them why. Maybe you're dropping off something or whatever it may be. 
maybe it's been a while, I'm in town, I just thought I'd say hi. And you go, and when you're with them, you take out that letter, and you both sit down, or you stand if you want, and you literally read the letter out loud to them. And what Seligman found, what the research shows, is that not only is this an incredibly moving and uplifting experience for the person you're actually sharing it with, but as you, the person who's offering gratitude, it's called a gratitude visit, the reader of this letter, um, it profoundly changes your state of mind and the shift in your state of mind actually stays with you for a pretty extended period of time. It's about the most effective booster of gratitude and the changes in mindset that's out there. A lot of people don't talk about it. They don't do it because it takes a little bit more investment than the standard, hey, at the end of the day, write down three things you're grateful for, which is great too, but this is really, really powerful. And, And the awesome thing about it too is that it helps fill your vitality bucket by really boosting your mindset. But at the same time, it also, it has carryover effect into your connection bucket. So, you know, now you're actually somebody who's really meant a lot to you, you're reaching back out to them and sharing this. And you're basically sometimes reconnecting with them for the first time in a long time. And it can be incredibly effective at filling your connection bucket as well. I've done this and I like this practice. How often do you do this, by the way? Because it's probably not a daily thing, right? Not as often enough, probably like every few months, you know? And it's funny, I've just been thinking about this. I was like, we turned the page and, you know, I want to commit to doing this as sort of a once a month thing now. So that's kind of one of my commitments for 2017. I like that. I like the idea. In fact, I'm going to write down right now, monthly gratitude visit, and I'll put it on my calendar. That way it gets done with all my other monthly stuff, almost like a task, but it'll be fun instead of dumb, like defragging my hard drive or whatever else I have there for the first of the month. Because on my calendar, the first of the month is all this weird stuff. It's like, click on these things and make sure you're what you might call it is empty and add salt to the water purifier. It's all that stuff, right? But this, this should go in there too. Yeah, absolutely. I did a gratitude visit a while ago and I had reached out to track down this professor. It was the week we started the show um, or the month we started the show anyway, which is funny because this is our 10 year anniversary month as well. So a, almost exactly 10 years ago told me, hey, you know what? You should be a teacher of some kind because you're really good at talking about these different concepts because I had to come up and teach the class something about law. And he told me that in front of the whole class and I was like, what are you talking about, man? Whatever. And then after class, he told me like, no, 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 really, I mean it. So I reached out to him maybe a year ago to thank him and not to be a Debbie Downer, he had the worst response. He asked me to like donate money to the university or something like that in his reply. (laughs) And I was just like, ugh. But I'm still a big fan of the practice because I felt really awesome for having done it. His response didn't even matter, actually. Yeah. And I think that's an important note because I think a lot of people are going to go, well, I did that once, but they didn't even reply. Or, you know, I did it, but then they were kind of like, okay, cool, man, bye. You know, and... It's not about their response, right? Yeah, it's about what it does to you. It would be wonderful if it landed on their ears and in their heart and it like really just, it made a really emotional impact. And at the same time, if it doesn't, it's about what it does to you when you take the time to express it. Exactly, and I I wanted to highlight that because for me that was really discouraging and I didn't do it again for a while and then I thought, well, who cares about his response? This isn't about him. I didn't assign this to him. I'm doing it for me. And it's not about like, what can I get from this random professor or random dean at a law school that I haven't attended and will never donate to, obviously, right? It has to do with me getting something out of it. And I got the positivity and the feelings as soon as I wrote the letter and knew he got it. It didn't even matter what came back. He could have written like, I don't remember you at all. Sorry, bud. I wouldn't have cared, really. It only affected me in the moment because I thought like, oh, I'm gonna make him feel great and he's gonna love it. And it didn't matter at all. It actually did much more for me. So I wanted to highlight that sort of negative example so that when people reach out to their high school, school teacher and they're like, yeah, I can't say I remember anything about you. Glad I had such an impact on your life. Not to get discouraged and to stop the practice because it really doesn't matter. This isn't for them. It's for you. You got a great drill slash exercise to create deep friendships very quickly. It's something that we do that's very similar to AOC bootcamp, one of the exercises we do at our boot camps, and it involves these 36 questions. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a little bit of homework for the listener here. Yeah, there's really interesting research done in a lab in Stony Brook University where the researchers were trying to figure out, can we actually construct a series of questions that would let total strangers sit down in a room and after 45 to 60 minutes kind of fall in love with each other in a remarkably short period of time? Could it develop a level of intimacy that was really compelling? So they did that. They constructed these questions. There are three sets of questions that add up to 36 total questions. And the idea behind the questions is that they start kind of superficial, kind of topical, 
And progressively, they keep getting a little bit more vulnerable and they keep requiring a little bit more disclosure until you're going into these really deep, deep questions. And what's so interesting is this, is that they actually showed that in a remarkably short period of time, they were able to create a level of intimacy and friendship where people left and a substantial people in this experiment said that they felt closer to the people that they hadn't known an hour ago than they did to many friends that they've known for years and years and years. And in fact, um, at least one couple from the original cohort ended up getting married. (laughs) That's crazy. So they start off with like, did you have any pets as a kid? What was your favorite subject in school to like, what's your deepest fear of yourself? Yeah, or you know, like, do you have some sense of how and when you're going to die? Cool. You know, some really sort of like deep questions or they would questions that really kind of made you reveal stuff about yourself and be vulnerable. And what they found was they weren't really trying to make people fall in love with each other. But what they were trying to create was a sense of genuine friendship based intimacy. And they were really effective at doing it. And that's on your website. We'll link that in the show notes as well. You can do this with maybe not strangers on the subway, but maybe start with your significant other and see what shakes out and then do it with some of your close friends if they're down for this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing like a little bit of homework at the end of the show. Jonathan, thank you so much, man. Really appreciate this. The book is loaded with practical exercises. It's almost more of a workbook than it is some kind of treatise on self-care. There's a lot of exercises in every single chapter. And I think that's something I'd like to highlight because I think a lot of folks are long on theory and short on work. Yeah. And that was a real focus for me. I was like, you know what? I want to put out something that really did feel more like a workbook than anything else. So I appreciate that. And thanks so much for having me on. It's been, I love the conversation. Great big thank you to Jonathan Fields. The book is called How to Live a Good Life, A Practical Guide to a Life Well-Lived. Of course, we will have that linked up in the show notes as we always do. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Jonathan on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Remember, you can tap your phone screen if that's how you're playing the show, and the show notes should pop up right on the screen of your phone there. I'm also on Twitter, so don't be a stranger, at The Art of Charm. It's one of the best ways to get a hold of me, to engage with the show, and I love to hear from you. Boot camps are live program details. We run these things three weeks a month. They're sold out a few months in advance, but check it out, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com to see people become part of the AOC family, see their growth. It's hugely rewarding. I love for you to join us in there. I want to encourage you as well to join us in our AOC challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or just text the word charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. That works in the U.S. Everywhere else, just go to theartofcharm.com slash challenge. And that challenge is about improving your networking and connection skills, developing relationships with people for personal and professional reasons. We'll also send you that fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show. And I do regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. It'll make you a better networker, a better connector, and of course, as per AOC standard, a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text the word charmed in the U.S. to 33444. For full show notes for this and all previous episodes, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash podcast. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web so stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them thanks for listening to the art of charm get more confidence relationship skills life hacks and more at the art of charm podcast.com